You ready to go ahead and get started with the Old Testament survey? This morning we come to the books of Hosea and Joel, the first two of the minor prophets. It's probably safe to say we don't know a lot about the minor prophets, at least I didn't, uh, compared to the rest of the books of the Bible, save for maybe Jonah, for obvious reasons. But this morning I'm going to talk a little bit about the role of the prophet, the calling of the prophet, why God needed them, why they were necessary, before we go into all the rest of the prophets. Next week, Stephen is going to teach through two more minor prophets, Amos and Obadiah, and then over the course of the rest of the summer, uh, I think we'll have three more lessons on the rest of the minor prophets, and we'll pick up the other three uh, major prophets. But before we go into all of this, as usual, let's ask the Lord to bless our time together, if you'd pray with me. Father God, you spoke through a donkey once. Uh, Speak through me. Lord, I ask you to bless this lesson with your Holy Spirit. Help us to understand the words that you spoke through the prophets so long ago. Uh, Open our eyes and our hearts and our minds to understand your word. And uh, help us to understand that your word is living and eternal and true for us today as much as it was when the, the prophets spoke them so long ago. And it's in Christ's name we ask this, in Jesus' name, amen. All right, so like I said before, I narrow my focus on these two prophets. I wanted to take some time to help us understand a little bit more about the prophets because I think they're a little bit misunderstood. First of all, who was the first prophet that God called? Does anybody know the first prophet? Scripture talks about him quite a bit. Moses. Moses. The prophet Moses was called to speak to the people of Israel a very disobedient people that were willing to leave God. The instant Moses went up on the mountain, they built a golden calf. So God called Moses to prophesy to the people and call them back to his word. Now, we've got a lot of prophets, a lot of prophets in the Old Testament. These four major and 12 minor prophets are not the only ones. We had a lot of earlier prophets, and their works are woven throughout the historical writings. And if you reference the slide here, When we say the historical writings, uh, we mean those that depict the history of the nation of Israel. A lot of prophets, but they didn't really have books attributed to their names. So these 16 prophets that comprise of the four major and the 12 minor prophets are sometimes called the literary prophets because they have books attributed to them. And these 16 prophets uh, are responsible for the last 17 books of the Bible from Isaiah through Malachi. A lot of times they're also called the latter prophets because they came after a really major event in Israel's history which happened in 922 B.C., about 900 years before Christ came. We'll talk about this a little more in a minute. The nation of Israel divided into two kingdoms and so all the prophets that came after that division are called the latter prophets as opposed to the earlier prophets. So that's a little background on uh, the names of the groups of the prophets. So who was the target audience of the prophets? For every single prophet, if you look through what they were called to and who they spoke to, it was always the nation of Israel, God's people, but not just to the people. The prophets were called to prophesy to the priests. We'll talk about that relationship because that's really important to understand. And importantly, the prophets were called to prophesy to the kings The Israelites, and this is important to understand, the Israelites were continually rebellious. They were a very rebellious people. They were intent on seeking after the pagan gods of the foreign nations that God continually warned them about. The same gods 
that God defeated when they took over the Holy Land. These people, these Israelites, you'll see it through the history of Israel, were so willing to go after other gods and reject God. And this is another reason why God called the prophets. We'll talk about that more in a second. And I want to emphasize here something. This struck me that this is important to understand. When you're going through the prophets, and you'll see this in, in Hosea this morning and many of the other prophets, they are indicting the nation of Israel and the priests and the rulers. They are indicting them and they are endless indictments of sin and rebellion. But you have to understand why God is so furious at them because they weren't just praying to little idols made of wood or little metallic statues. They were actually opening themselves up, if you think about it, to demonic spirits of the foreign gods. When we open ourselves up to Christ and the Holy Spirit takes us over and changes us, if you reject him and go after other gods, these maybe just seem like representation of little, little idols, but you're actually, um, they were at danger of demonic worship. And why do I say this? Well, it's the only way I can explain when scripture informs us that the Israelites would actually give up their own infant children into the fires of Moloch, one of the foreign gods. And the men practiced ritual prostitution And when you think, well, what is ritual prostitution? It's not a sex act. It's actually an act of worship to another god. I don't know how we can explain that any other way than some sort of demon possession from the satanic world if they're going after these gods. So I don't think it was just as innocent as bowing to a little carved image, if that makes sense. So hopefully that will help you appreciate when God brings his indictments through his prosecuting attorneys, the prophets, why he was so inflamed and angry at them. Scripture says, by the way, just to add to that, um, the Israelites participated in every imaginable lewd practice. And uh, 2 Chronicles 28 says they did this on the high places, on the hills, and under every green tree. So apparently it was pretty rampant. It's hard to imagine, but uh, like I said, there was a very spiritual realm at work here. We have to understand this. So I want to be really clear. The Israelites, God's people, were not living a distinct holy life as separated people from the culture as God called them to be. So what is a prophet? Uh, The prophet Amos, in in, uh, Amos 2 verse 11, tells us that the prophet is a gift from God. The prophet is a gift from God, but not everybody took them that way. They weren't real popular. I'll talk about that in a second. God told the prophet Jeremiah, all that I command you you shall speak. So God filled the prophet with his Holy Spirit and they spoke God's words on his behalf to the people. Now, I want to talk about their roles a little bit more. I always thought, maybe many people still think, that the main role of a prophet was to do what? What do we typically think of when we think of a prophet? What did they do? Good. I I was going to say, yeah, they were preachers. That's a very important role. I'm going to talk about that. Most people don't know that, though. When I grew up, I was taught that the, the prophet was a seer, a foreteller of the future, right? And that was certainly one of their roles. A lot of uh, prophecy about Christ's coming that was fulfilled. There's still a lot of unto- unfulfilled prophecy. So they certainly were seers. But to your point, Jan, and I think this needs to be emphasized, the prophets were also preachers. They were preachers of the law that God had already revealed. I think that's important. The prophet was a preacher of God's law that had already been revealed. So contrary to popular belief, what most people think, they weren't always speaking new truth. 
In fact, if you look at the prophets' works, and I'm talking again the major and the minor prophets, they were really um, unpacking truth that had been revealed primarily through Moses, right? That was their scriptures, and there were a few others, okay? So the question that I had was, well, how are the prophets then different from the priests? The primary responsibility of the priests, besides receiving the animals for sacrifices, butchering, uh, sprinkling the blood, and, and offering them up in the fires as sacrifices, the primary responsibility of the priests was to teach God's law and to preach it to the people. But if you look throughout Israel's history, I think we've seen that already in some of our Old Testament survey, the priests were not always faithful. In fact, many of the priests led the people, the majority of priests, led the people into the idol worship. If you remember back in the book of Judges, we talked about the tribe of Benjamin. One of their priests put temples, or, uh, put idols of the foreign gods in his temple. And you say, well, how can the people follow those priests? Well, the priests were the shepherds. The people are the, the sheep. If they're not taught correctly, they'll follow their leader. So the priests actually led people into apostasy in many, many times. So because of this, God called the prophets to preach what the priests were failing to teach. So they would often teach with great forcefulness. Many times uh, they would teach things that hadn't even been taught yet or taught wrongly. So that was an important role of the priests. And another thing to note is that the priests were, I'm sorry, the prophets were called whenever Israel was in danger of self-destruction. If you look at the times they came, Israel was almost completely apostate. So God called them to warn them of impending danger. So a lot of the, the prophets, as you read through them, God is, like I said, indicting them and serving as watchmen on the wall, saying, look out, you are in danger of death and punishment. So they were, this is actually um, Hosea chapter 9, verse 8. It says, the prophet is the watchman of Ephraim. That's another name for the northern kingdom of Israel. So they were watchmen. And I think of the prophet as kind of like uh, if you love someone who's about to step in front of a truck coming down the road, you will tackle them. And it might hurt them, but you're going to try to save their lives. So if you think about the prophets as they're speaking on God's behalf, indicting the people, the people did not like this. But they were trying to save their lives and show the mercy of God. So, like I say, it's sad but true the prophets weren't very popular for speaking out against sin. So let me reiterate real quick. They were seers, they were foretellers. Like Jan mentioned, they were preachers. They were preaching very forcefully to people that were in danger of real, real serious punishment. And they were also watchmen, calling people back to the word of God to preserve the word of God. Isaiah 30, verse 10, characterizes the people and their response to the prophets who say to the seers, do not see. And to the prophets, do not prophesy to us what is right. Speak to us smooth things. Prophesy illusions. Which reminds me of, some people attribute this to Frederick Nietzsche. I said, don't usually like to quote German atheistic philosophers, but he said, uh, some people, most people don't like to know the truth for fear that it will destroy their illusions. And I think this is an example of this. They didn't want to know what was true. Matthew 5, verse 12, Jesus when he was preparing his disciples for all the abuse they would see, he said, um, Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. People do not like people that tell the truth a lot of the times. So that is a little bit about the prophets and their roles and when God called them.
and what their purpose was. I hope that's helpful because, like I said, we're going to go through a lot of the lessons of the prophets uh, over the next few weeks. So let's go to the book of Hosea. Lost myself on my slides here. Somewhere around 922 years before Christ came, like I said, a little bit more on history, the unified kingdom of Israel split in two. There were two political factions. Apparently, one of the factions was starting to dislike the fundamentalism of, I believe, Judah at the time, was a little more obedient to God. So Judah and Benjamin to the south remained as the southern kingdom. They were known as Judah. The northern kingdom split off. They kept the name Israel. Sometimes Hosea calls them Ephraim because that was the biggest tribe. Or sometimes he'll call them Samaria because that was the capital city. So as you read through Hosea, you'll see that. It didn't take very long after this split. Just like today when some modern churches or denominations can almost go completely apostate. It takes one or two generations. This is what happened. Not too long after 922 BC, when the northern kingdom split off, their priests started deviating. They didn't really like teaching the truth, and the people followed, and very soon they became an apostate nation. Hosea was called in to the northern kingdom after he'd prophesied for a little while to Uzziah and and, uh, Hezekiah in the southern kingdom. The book of Hosea was written in the northern kingdom to the northern people and their apostate priests and one apostate king in in general, Uh, King Jeroboam II. So he's going to be preaching and prophesying to the nation um, almost 200 years after this split. And these were bad people, like I mentioned. The kings, the, the people, and the priests. Hosea was coming because they were a dead and dying nation in a spiritual sense. And lo and behold, as we go through Hosea, you'll see him warning of God's coming punishment and judgment. And sure enough, And you'll see this. If you look in the upper right-hand corner of my slide, you can see, it doesn't show it up there, Assyria, an enemy nation, overtook them and decimated them and spread them to the four corners of the earth where they still are today. Uh, But he was warning them of this a couple of decades, if not more, before it happened. So uh, Hosea is often called the deathbed prophet because he was basically witnessing to a dead or dying patient, the deathbed prophet. He was the last one to prophesy to the northern kingdom of Israel. 2 Kings 14, verse 24, says this about King Jeroboam II. It says, he did evil in the eyes of the Lord, and he failed to correct the wrongs that his father, King Jeroboam I, had done. So, um, as Michael has shown us, it's a little bit intimidating to follow Michael Dietzel, who's been teaching through the first four books of Hosea in great detail, and I've learned quite a bit. Uh, but what I'm going to do is reiterate some of the themes that he taught on, because as an athlete, I was always taught repetition is a facet of learning. So I'll highlight the first four chapters with what I've learned, and uh, hopefully that'll be helpful, and then we'll just breeze through the rest of the chapters and see what we can get that is still very relevant to us today from God's word, okay? Okay. So, as you remember, God instructed Hosea the prophet to marry a woman named Gomer, who scripture describes as a wife of whoredom. She was a harlot. Now, we have to understand, Hosea actually loved her. He loved her deeply. She gave him three children, but she left the family unit and went back to her wife of harlotry. You can imagine this, and he loved her deeply. He really did. In fact, he went after her, as Michael taught us. He went and found her, 
in the house of another man who apparently she'd become indebted to. And he basically owned her. Hosea actually purchased her back monetarily to get her back, demonstrating his love for her and providing an illustration for the nation of Israel of God's judgment and indictment against them. And you'll see that he calls them a harlot many times. And it has struck me that it is amazing to me that God put Hosea through this. He really loved her, but he went after her. And I would imagine when he was preaching to them and calling them harlots and whores, he was speaking from experience. He, he kind of got it. And so his preaching was far, far more powerful, I would imagine, than he had not gone through this experience personally. So as we read through the book of Hosea, like I said, we see multiple times Hosea is indicting them. Think of him as a prosecuting attorney and judge, indicting them in a court of law for their rebellion and their sin. He does this multiple times. Multiple times he warns them they are going to be punished for their transgressions. He mentions their harlotry multiple times. Multiple times. He calls them a whore. I don't think Hosea or any of the prophets really had a lot of good sensitivity training. When Hosea talks about their harlotry, to be very clear, he's talking about their idolatry. And he's not saying it in some sort of a modern understanding of idolatry. He's using the original definition, which means they were worshiping other false gods. And like I mentioned, these weren't harmless figurines. I'm, I'm convinced that by praying to these, these other gods, people were literally giving for permission for the spiritual realm, not God's Holy Spirit, to enter them. I can't explain, like I said, the ritual prostitution and the sacrificing of their own infant children any other way. I, I just can't explain that. Now, uh, something to look for as we read through Hosea, and you'll see this in the very first chapter. If you look at chapter 1, Sometimes Hosea is speaking in the first person out of his own experience. He's giving a a narrative detail of his marriage to Gomer. And interspersed in there, you see God's words speaking through Hosea back and forth. So you have to watch this. I'm going to pick up on something Michael talked about. Verses 3 through 9 of chapter 1, we see God's rejection, his soon rejection of the nation of Israel, pictured in the prophetic names of he and Gomer's three children. So each of the names represented what God was about to do to the nation of Israel. If you remember, the first one was named Jezreel, meaning God will scatter, which happened to the nation when Assyria came and took them over, and they're still scattered. The second one was named Lo-Ruhamah, meaning no mercy. He would have no mercy on them if they did not repent. The third one was called Lo-Ami. Interestingly, it means not my people, and I read some Bible commentators that said he may have named, we don't know this, but uh, Hosea may have named this child Lo-Amin, not my people, because he wasn't sure if it was his own child and that maybe Gomer conceived that child out of adultery. We don't know. But the names were prophetic for what God was going to, how he was going to deal with the nation of Israel. Let's go to chapter 2, verse 1. God tells Hosea, say to your brothers, and then Hosea records the words God gave him to speak to them, telling them, again, this goes on and on, the indictments, calling them whores, calling them harlots, telling them they will be punished, warning them like a watchman on the wall. But interwoven within the indictment, and this is something that I see throughout the book of Hosea, it's pretty amazing, God doesn't change. God is a God of love, of God of grace, a God of mercy, and he promises them right in in the middle of this indictment in chapter 2, He also promises that God will have mercy on them. 
He's talking in the ultimate sense, and that he will have mercy and fulfill the promises that he gave their forefathers. And we see this throughout Hosea. Go to chapter 3. You'll see like in uh, chapter 1, Hosea is again speaking in the first person. And here he's detailing, giving a personal narrative of what God commanded him to do when he told him to go and retrieve his wife of harlotry, um, Gomer, and to go back and buy her back. So we see again the restoration of Hosea's marriage as an illustration of God's restoration of the nation of Israel back to him. Now, come to chapter 4. Last week, uh, we were talking, Jan and Carolyn and I were talking about what an amazing job Michael did teaching through chapter 4. Wow. That was incredible. Michael said, and I'd never heard this before, but I think it's appropriate, he called chapter 4 a spiritual autopsy on the nation of Israel, which, like I said, Moses was called the deathbed prophet because they were essentially dead. And Michael said there was one specific cause of death. It was a lack of the knowledge of God. And in fact, if you look at uh, verse 6 of chapter 4, let me get to that. I'll show you what I put in my Bible. I've had this outlined. I think this is probably my favorite verse in the book of Hosea. Chapter 4, verse 6. I think this could be the seminal, (laughs) arguably the seminal verse. My people are destroyed for a lack of knowledge, says God through the prophet And again, God is speaking through Hosea as a prosecutor here. And if you'll see, as Michael was speaking, I put a somewhat messy bracket around verses 4 through 11 where the indictment is of the priests. And he's indicting the priests specifically, telling us, or telling them rather, why his people lack the knowledge of God. If you keep reading, it says, because the priests themselves have rejected knowledge and failed to teach it to the people. And like Michael pointed out, because of their lack of the knowledge of God, they had no love for God. And I think this is true today. Why do people not love God? It's because they haven't been taught God. The vast majority of people in Lawrence have no clue about the attributes of God. They don't know scripture, so they're willing to believe anything the world says about him. They lack the knowledge of God, so they don't love God. So it was true then, it's true now. Chapter 5. God proclaims coming punishment for the priests. He's done with his indictment. He says, punishment is coming. And for the nation of Israel and for the king. See, the prophets indicted the spiritual and the political leaders along with the people. But not just for those in the northern kingdom. Like I said, the northern kingdom went apostate very early on. But eventually, even faithful Judah to the south. Let's read what he says in chapter 5, verses 5 and 6. The pride of Israel, he's talking about the northern kingdom, testifies to his face. Israel and Ephraim shall stumble in his guilt. And then he says Judah, mentions Judah, the southern kingdom. Judah also shall stumble with them, with their flocks and herds. They shall go to seek the Lord, but they will not find him because he has withdrawn from them. And this is a very scary thing, this last part of verse 6. Not only is the northern kingdom being indicted and the southern kingdom But God is warning them that he's going to withdraw from them. And this is critical. I went and heard John MacArthur speak last year at the Creation Museum. And he said, God's wrath, we usually think of God's wrath as raining down fire and brimstone and decimating people physically. But another form of God's wrath is when he turns them over to their sin. He was equating it to what we're seeing in America today in the Western world. God just turns them over, turns his back, and withdraws his blessing And I think that that's what he's referring to here. Look at verse 6 again. They shall go to seek the Lord, but they will not find him 
he has withdrawn from them. So his blessings will be withdrawn from them. Let's go to chapter 6. Verses 1 through 3, again, you can see Hosea speaking in the first person, and he's pleading with his fellow Israelites, his brethren, whom he obviously loves, otherwise he wouldn't be tackling them in front of an oncoming bus. He wants them to return to the Lord. Beginning in verse 4, you kind of peruse that, all the way through the end of chapter 7, God is again speaking through Hosea in the first person directly to the people. And you can see he's mourning his children's lack of love for him and his lack of respect for them. And he bemoans, God does through Hosea, their utter depravity and their faithlessness. If you look at verse 7 of chapter 7, it says, All their kings have fallen and none of them calls on me. And you can almost feel God's intense emotion as he talks about their disobedience and lack of love for him, their father, and this is in verses 13 through 16 of chapter 7. Move to chapter 9. God continues his indictment of Israel. We're skipping a lot of indictment. If you read it, that's why I went through the sins that they were going through, so you can understand it's relentless. Verse 12 of chapter 9, he repeats the theme from chapter 5, saying, even if they, meaning the Israelites, bring up children, I will bereave them, Till none is left. I had to look up the word bereave. It means to deprive someone of something important or necessary. And he says, woe to them when I depart from them. So once again, God is talking about this form of wrath where he completely abandons them, turns them over to their sin, and removes his blessings. So just like he did in chapter 5, that's what he's talking about. Go to chapter 10. It's more of the same if you glance at chapter 10. But then in chapter 11, we come to chapter 11, you can see a loving, compassionate God. I like how Hosea depicts the attributes of God in equal balance. He is angry, wrathful God, but he's also a loving, compassionate God. At the same time, both are true. Um, He's speaking here as a father, as a father remembering when his child was young and innocent. I'll read the first four verses of chapter 11. When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt I called my son. The more they were called, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and burning offerings to idols. Yet it was I who taught Ephraim to walk. I took them up by their arms, but they did not know that I healed them. I led them with cords of kindness, with the bands of love. And I became to the one, I became to them as the one who eases the yoke on their jaws, referring to an animal of burden that would have pulled a plow, take the yoke off, take the bit out of their mouth. Here, have relief. This is God speaking to them. And he says, I bent down to them and fed them. Then in verses 7, I'm sorry, 5 through 7 of chapter 11, now God tells them what's coming for them very, very soon for them as a nation. They shall not return to the land of Egypt. That was their former place of enslavement. But Assyria shall be their king. Because they've refused to return to me, the sword shall rage against their cities, consume the bars of their gates, and devour them because of their own counsels, meaning the corrupt priests, the corrupt political leaders, the kings. My people are bent on turning away from me. Though they call out to the Most High, he shall not raise them up. And then again in verse 8, we see God once again speaking in love and compassion for his beloved children, despite their disobedience. This is amazing. 
You can hear him pleading, how can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? How can I make you like Adma? How can I treat like Zeboim? And these are two cities, by the way, if you look in Genesis 19, verses 28 and 29, in Genesis 10, 19, um, Adma and Zeboim were neighboring, bordering cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. Remember, uh, homosexuality was rampant in that area, and God did destroy those cities. So he's saying here, how can I do to you what I did to Sodom and Gomorrah, Adma, and Zeboim? My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. He does love them. But then in verses 9 through 11, despite his anger towards them, God reminds them ultimately what we know to be true, that he is God. He's not a man, meaning he doesn't go back on his promises. He keeps them. And ultimately, he says in verse 11, he will return them to their homes. And we know where that is. Talk about that in a minute. Chapter 14, the closing chapter of the book. Hosea, once again, speaks to the people of Israel. Verse 2, he pleads for them once again to return to the Lord. And the chapter closes again with God addressing them. Verses 4 through 9 of chapter 14, telling them through the prophet that eventually they will return to him in verse 7. And in verse 8, he reminds them, it is I who answer and look after you. So again, here we see the prophecy of God's future mercy towards Israel and her ultimate restoration and the future enjoyment of God's blessings, still distant in the future. But like a jealous husband towards his wife, the book of Hosea shows us that God is jealous towards his children. And it's not jealousy like we attribute to human jealousy, which is sinful and prideful in nature. God's jealousy is righteous and holy. God will not tolerate any rivals. And we want a jealous God because he comes after those who love him. Even those who rejected him. He still loves this nation. Even though Israel may stumble and fall, and they're still stumbled and fallen, God did punish them. But he promises one day he will redeem them back to himself. And and we should all as believers eagerly await the day that God restores the, the nation of Israel in the covenant blessings he's promised them this whole time. And they are reunited, reunited with the God of Israel our Heavenly Father, their Heavenly Father. And in the final verse of the book, Hosea closes in 14 verse 9 with words that I think they are very applicable to us, modern day Gentiles today, as equally applicable as they were to the Israelites then, God says through Hosea, whoever is wise, let him understand these things. Whoever is discerning, let him know them. For the ways of the Lord are right. And the upright walk in them, but the transgressors stumble in them. Applicable lessons from Hosea over 2,000 years ago. Shows us a lot about who God is. Now we very quickly transition into the book of Joel. A very short little book with only three chapters. We know very little about Joel himself. We know his name means Jehovah is God. And he was the son of Pethuel. And I, Outside of that, we really don't know much about him. We don't even know really when he wrote. You read the different Bible scholars, and everybody has a different interpretation of when he wrote, but it really doesn't matter because his theme, the day of the Lord, is a timeless one that is relevant in all ages, even to us today. We still have a lot of unfulfilled prophecy. I'm not going to really go into deep eschatology here, but the day of the Lord is what Joel 
focused on. The only thing we know other than that is that he wrote sometime after the Babylonian exile. The day of the Lord is a term used through all, well, most of the prophetical books. Let's see, Isaiah, Ezekiel, Amos, Obadiah, Zephaniah, Zechariah, and Malachi. So it might be something very important, I would surmise, from, from that. And Joel, when he's talking about the day of the Lord, he's not talking in a generic sense. Some of the Israelites understood that the day of the Lord could be lowercase, meaning a day that God brought judgment on a city or a battle. The day of the Lord was awesome. But this is the all caps day of the Lord that we read about in the book of Revelation, a future eschatological or end times day of the Lord when the Lord will bring a universal judgment on all the nations in the end of days. And Joel focused in these three short chapters on one major aspect of that day, and it was a great battle where the Lord intervenes in history to destroy the enemy nations and deliver his people Israel. Chapter 1. You read in the first four verses about apparently a literal locust plague. And the Israelites were very familiar with this. And by the way, I didn't mention this in my discussion on the prophets, but so many of the prophets, when they talk about the land and the effects of a devastating plague or something on the land, it was paralleled with their spiritual well-being. When the Israelites were in apostasy, the land suffered. So uh, we see here um, a literal locust plague. Sometime during the lifetime of, of Joel, he must have experienced this. Every green thing has been stripped from the land, and economic devastation followed. It affected, if you look in verses 5 through 18, it's kind of funny. It talks about its effect on the drunkards. Obviously, they couldn't get their wine like they liked to have it. The priests were affected, lack of bread, lack of sacrifices by the animals, uh, from the animals, and the farmers were affected. So this locust invasion and the devastation was a judgment on sin. And this was a very vivid picture uh, of a coming future invasion of actual troops on the great day of the Lord that Joel's talking about. Look in verse 13 of chapter 1. Of course, the prophet tells them to repent, to turn from their sinful ways, and to humble themselves and to return to God. There's always a call to repent. Go to chapter 2. The first 11 verses tell us more about this great and horrible future day of the Lord. Verses 1 and 2 in particular says that on this dark and terrible day, a great army of great and powerful people will be so great in number that they will cover the surrounding mountains in blackness. If you can imagine that. And I looked up uh, Revelation 9 verse 16. It says, if it's talking about the same army, I believe it is, that these armies number at 200 million soldiers which would explain why the surrounding mountains would be black. So um, we see a description of a literal foreign army invasion coming with the army being described in locust-like terms. This is patterned after the locust invasion illustrated in chapter 1. So both both of these locust invasions were instruments of the Lord's judgment, but one is in the past, one is in the future still yet to come. From verse 18 through the end of the chapter, God tells them again, ultimately, he will have pity on them. And the prophet goes on to detail the deliverance that God will bring the nation. And then we come to verses 28 through 32 of chapter 2. This is probably, um, I would say, the most well-known passage in the book of Joel. I'll read these verses for us. And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. 
Your old men shall dream dreams and your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female servants, in those days I will pour out my spirit. And I will show wonders in the heavens and on the earth, blood and fire and columns of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem, there shall be those who escape. As the Lord has said, and among the survivors shall be those whom the Lord calls. And I want to bookmark here, verse 32. Uh, I think this, and it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Some people say, well, what about what Jesus said on judgment day? Many people will say, Lord, Lord, didn't I prophesy in your name? And they'll say, get away from me, I never knew you. So Jesus was obviously talking about people that just were saying this by their mouths and not believing it in their heart. I believe here in verse 32, obviously God is talking about seeing their hearts when they call in the name of the Lord in their hearts and with their mouths, just to clarify that. Okay, chapter 3, the opening verse of chapter 3. We're told that one of the reasons for God judging the Gentile nations in the end times with this invading army will be for, uh, not through the invading, invading army, he's going to destroy them, but it will be for the dividing of his land. This is a charge that they're guilty of. Let's, let's read chapter 3. Verse 1 and 2 here. For behold, in those days and at that time, when I restore the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem, I will gather all the nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat. I will gather all the nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat, and I will enter into judgment with them there on behalf of my people and my heritage Israel, because they have scattered them among the nations and have divided up my land and it seems that this is a really solemn warning to all these countries that are telling Israel to chill out and if they want peace to divide up their land with people who don't really own it. And when we talked about this back in January when we opened up with the book of Genesis, if you'll recall, this land that we're talking about is still in play today. God gave this land to the people of Israel himself. And this fact is repeated over 300 times throughout the scriptures. The land belongs to the, to the Hebrews, to the Israelites, to the nation of Israel. And I don't think there's going to be any politician, Jew or Gentile, uh, who has the right to carve it up and give it away just for the name of peace. So I, I think this is why it appears that this is what God is going to do when he says, I am going to avenge my people. All right, so the first 16 verses here in chapter 3, we see God's judgment on the nations. And then in verses 17 through 21, we see the restoration of and the future, future blessings restored to the Jews. And let's go to the final two verses of Joel. Joel 3, verses 20 and 21. But Judah shall be inhabited forever, God says through the prophet, and Jerusalem to all generations. I will avenge their blood, blood that I have not avenged, for the Lord dwells in Zion. So it's obvious that God is zealous for his people, what we've seen in these two books. He is zealous for his people. He's also zealous for his land. When Christ comes back to establish his reign in a thousand-year kingdom on earth, he, the scriptures tell us he will rule from Jerusalem and every square inch of land promised to Abraham in Genesis chapter 15 
will belong to the Jews at that point. So why should we care about all of these things that happened over 2,000 years ago? Here we are, modern-day Gentiles in Lawrence, Kansas in 2019, and we've been watching this story unfold between God and his people, the ones he loved, and we saw how unfaithful they were continually, time after time, and I barely scratched the surface. Um, But we see who God is in this. He's the God who never changes. He is holy, And he is just. He must punish sin. He has to if he's a just God. But we also see how patient he is and how merciful he is. Our God is a God of mercy, which means he doesn't give us what we deserve. But our God's also a God of grace, meaning he gives us what we don't deserve. He's an incredible God, isn't he? He was then, he still is now. And that's what we see in the books of Hosea and Joel. And there's more to come, so I'll end there. And next week, be sure you come back because Stephen is going to take us through two more of the minor prophets, Amos and Obadiah. Let's pray real quick. Heavenly Father, thanks for your living word. Thanks for being the God who never changes. Lord, I pray that uh, anything that I said this morning that was incorrect, that came from me, you strike it from everybody's memory. But that which is true, that which you want us to know, sink those words deeply in our hearts, Lord, that we might worship you more fully in your son Jesus' name. Amen.